Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Mark, and my heart is full. Um, it's an honor to be able to be with the family of God this morning. It's an honor to be able to worship with you. It's a profound honor to be able to preach again. Um, I initially wasn't supposed to be preaching this morning, but some things got shifted around, and it fell to me to preach, and it just so happens that I get to preach on my favorite psalm. I didn't even pick this. Pete had already picked it, but Psalm 121 is my favorite psalm. It has been since I was probably 19 or 20. I fell in love with this psalm when I was in college. Um, I've never preached on it, so I'm really excited to get to look at that with you guys today. Um, <clears throat> you've got it here in your bulletin. It'll be on the screen, but I welcome you to look it up in your Bible if you want to as well. So this is Psalm 121. A song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy God, you know every heart in this room. and You know that we come in here bringing different joys and different concerns and hurts. And we all need you. We are all in, in desperate need of your help. We pray that Psalm 121 would be balm for our souls this morning. And we pray that the name of Jesus Christ would be glorified through our study of this psalm. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. So <clears throat> my wife and I are both on staff here at Orangewood. Uh, Brandy works in the communications department. She does graphic design. So if you like the way this looks, you have her to thank for that. If you don't, blame Craig or somebody else for that. Um, and I am working with the young adult ministry. Uh, before we were here, Brandy was on staff with student ministry at First Presbyterian Church of Orlando, which is the big church downtown. And I also was very involved. I led a group of high school guys. I started with them when they were uh, not even in ninth grade yet, and they're seniors now. And I'm still um, in touch with them, and I've been able to spend a lot of time with them. Every fall, First Preds has a fall retreat for the youth where they go up to East Tennessee to a camp called Eagle Rock in the mountains. In fact, they're there this weekend. Um, and so I would always go with them and be with my guys and a couple of years ago, when they were probably ninth or 10th grade, they decided that one day we were all going to do rock climbing together. And um, unlike Pete, that's not something that comes naturally to me. So I wasn't like just jumping at the chance to be in like 20 degree weather and doing physical activity. I wanted to do the hot cocoa activity. But, <laughs> but I decided in solidarity to go with my guys and they're all like lacrosse and football players. So they're like just ripping up this mountain and like, you know, doing that. 
And I was hoping I would just kind of get to supervise and maybe not have to do it. But they all started going, shark, shark, shark. Because they call me shark for some reason. I, no, none of us remember why they call me shark. It rhymes with Mark. That's as close as I can get. But so I decided to do this. So there's this cliff and, and granted, I, I was like buckled in. There's a rope and there's a guy at the top holding the rope. So if I fall, he would like pull it tight. I wouldn't hit the ground. But when you're climbing, it doesn't feel like there's any help. Um, and so I started out strong. I was like, I do push-ups. I can do this. Started out strong and I got about two thirds of the way up and I was kind of doing that, you know, and I looked down, which was a stupid thing to do. And I thought this is way higher up than I thought it was. And I literally remember thinking, I just want to be home. Uh, and I, so I was kind of stuck cause I was like, I don't think I can do this. But I also don't want to have like the descent of shame where I'm just like hanging like that while the guy like takes me back down. So about then, like all my guys just start cheering, like, come on, Jark, you can do this. You can do this. And I'm like, I've got to try. And I'm like struggling. And then I feel the rope get tight. And the guys were looking at me. They weren't looking at the guy at the top. But what happened is the guy who was kind of like spotting at the top basically pulled me up that cliff. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, second wind. Here we go. And I got to the top and he was like, good job, man. And I found him later that night at dinner. And I was like, you really bailed me out there. And he said, I just gave you a little help. I just gave you a little help. Well, I'm sure it's not hard for you to see where I'm going with this since we're looking at a psalm where we lift our eyes to the hills and we ask, where does my help come from? I hope that by the end of our time this morning, you'll be a little more clear on maybe what the hill represents and also where your help comes from. The psalm begins, I lift my eyes up to the hills. So we have to ask, what are the hills? And if you, if you notice the heading at the top, it's a song of ascents. And this isn't the only one. Psalms 120 to Psalms 134 are all songs of ascents. And biblical historians have different views on what that means. We're not really sure. Some people think that the songs of ascent were songs that pilgrims would sing when they were on their way to Jerusalem for one of the three annual festivals. Some people think that when is Israel was exiled when they were far, far away from home and they were in Babylon, that they would sing these songs, either dreaming of being back in Jerusalem, or maybe even after Ezra and Nehemiah had rebuilt the city, they were making the pilgrimage back. But regardless, we know that it has something to do with a struggle, with some task that we have to do. The Hebrew word for hills is har, like Hardy har har. And it can be translated hills or it can be translated mountains. And I won't belabor this point, but even though our text, this is the ESV version, English Standard Version, it says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. But if you noticed, we just sang a song that said, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. There's a lot of other translations that say, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. When I was in college, the version that I read said that. So that's kind of how I think of this. Um, But also, 
scholars believe that the psalmist probably would have had in mind the hills or the mountains surrounding Jerusalem. So do we have a photo of that? So if you look at that, those aren't like the Himalayas. It's not like snow caps at the top. But if we can call Mount Dora a mountain, I think we can call (laughs) those a mountain. So uh, I might say hills or mountains. Um, But just to make sure that I was, uh, you know, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm not trying to say that I am. In fact, all the cool things I'll say about Hebrew, I did study it in seminary, but you could Google any of this stuff and find it out in about five minutes. So don't think I'm some big scholar that knows better than the translators of the ESV. But I like the mountain. Because if I say, I'm going to run up the hill, you're like, okay. If I say, I'm going to run up the mountain, you're like, whoa, okay. It's a mountain. And I, I was looking at other instances in the Old Testament where that word har means mountain instead of hill. So Mount Sinai, Har Sinai. Mount Horam, Har Horam. So it was commonly used. But the time that I found it used that hit me the hardest is in Genesis 22. And you may remember Genesis 22 because that's the story where God calls Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. See, God had told Abraham that he was going to give him a son. And through this son, he was going to become the father of many nations and the whole world would be blessed. But look what God tells Abraham in Genesis 22, verse two. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And the Hebrew word for mountains there is har. I think a lot of people probably read Psalm 121 and they think about um, like their vacation to, to Colorado and they see the mountains and they're like, I lift my eyes to the mountains. This reminds me of God. That's where my help comes from. And I don't think that would be a wrong way to look at this, but I've never seen it that way. I honestly see it more like when Sam and Frodo see Mount Doom from the distance and they're thinking, we have to go there? We have to climb that? Where's our help going to come from? See, throughout the ages, in poetry, in folklore, in writing, mountains always symbolize obstacles and not necessarily just physical obstacles, emotional obstacles, existential obstacles, obstacles of experience. And I think that must be what Abraham thought when he saw a mountain from a distance and he knew he was going to have to take his own son's life there. Look at what it says in Genesis 22 verse four. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw that place from afar lifted up his eyes. It's the exact same phrase as verse one of Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Abraham lifted his eyes. And when he lifted his eyes, he saw the mountain from afar and it wasn't primarily a thing of beauty. It was a sight of horror, of heartache. It was more than just a physical obstacle to overcome. It was a test of faith. It was an emotional journey that he would have to take. 
And if we look at the mountain in this way, we don't need to be near Jerusalem or to see actual hills to be able to imagine what this means. Right here this morning in Maitland, Florida, each one of us has a mountain. Each one of us can lift our eyes up and see something looming in the distance that makes us ask, where does my help come from? And so my question to you this morning is, what is your mountain? What is your mountain? In the bulletin, I didn't give you notes. I didn't give you an outline. You've got a blank page. If you're going to use it, don't write my words. Write the words that God lays on your heart because I don't want this to just stay on the page. I want it to get into our hearts. What is your mountain? What is that thing that you see looming that you think, I don't know how I'm going to do this? This week alone, I've talked to two different families who don't know where they're going to be living two months from now. I've talked to people who don't have work. I've talked to people who are on the painful, painful mountain of infertility. I've talked to two different people who are putting elderly parents into a nursing home. Some of you this week are looking forward to Thanksgiving. Some of you are dreading Thanksgiving because it's hard being around family. Or some of you are dreading it because there's going to be an empty uh, chair at the table this year. We all have a mountain. Some of you are climbing already. Some of you see it looming in the distance. But I want you to ask, where does your help come from? Does it come from the person who writes your paycheck, from your 401k? Does it come from your resume? We need this psalm to remind us our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And when the psalmist says heaven and earth, he's using a literary device called a merism. It doesn't matter if you know that word or remember it, but here's the idea. It's two contrasting things, and they're meant to emphasize completeness. So I'll give you an example you'll understand. If I say, I can't find my keys, and I've searched high and low, you're not going to say, well, Mark, your problem is you've only searched high and low. You need to search like eye level. You understand that when I say I've searched high and low, it means I've searched everywhere. When this says the Lord made heaven and earth, it's saying he made everything. He made the dirt that you stand on. He made the clouds in the sky, but he also made things unseen like philosophy, like marriage, like education and art. And so I want you to really let the weight of this hit you before we move on. The one who made everything is your help. He's not your antagonist. He didn't wind things up and let it go. He's not in the clouds waiting to throw lightning bolts at you if you mess up. The Lord who made heaven and earth is your help. And he made the very mountains that we fear. Your help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. It's interesting, verses 1 and 2 are in first person. It says, I lift my eyes. Where does my help come from? But as soon as 
the psalmist establishes that the help comes from the Lord, it switches to third person. The rest of this psalm is saying he, because it's giving us descriptions of who the Lord is and what he does. And in verse three, the psalmist identifies the Lord a different way. He calls him he who keeps you. And in verse five, he says, the Lord is your keeper. And in a short psalm of only eight verses, the word keep or keeper appears six times. And so it's significant. And when we think about keep, we usually in our everyday language mean it like the opposite of give away. So you're going through clothes and you make two piles and I'm going to, I'm going to give this one to goodwill. I'm going to keep this pile. But in this context, we're talking about God keeping us keeping human beings. And so in that sense, when we think about keeping human beings, we usually think about childcare. So Brandy and I might be like, we're going on a date. Who's going to keep baby Lucy? Meredith Gant is going to keep baby Lucy because she's awesome. Um, and that gets a little closer because it's, it's, it's care. It's uh, watching over. And, and the word here, if you care, in Hebrew is shamar. And sometimes it's translated keep. Sometimes it's translated preserve. Sometimes it's watch over. So when you think about passages that say, keep the covenants, keep the commandments of God, that's shamar. When you think about someone keeping watch at the city gates or keeping watch over prisoners, that's the same word. And so the emphasis here is attending to something with great care. And we also recognize it from the ironic blessing that says, the Lord bless you and what? Keep you. So the reason this is so significant is that in order for the Lord to keep us, it means he has to be consistently with us. He holds you near. He's with you as you see the mountains looming in the distance, but he's also with you as you climb. In verse three, it says, he will not let your foot be moved. And as you reach the summit, He's with you there. And in fact, when we reach the top, we often encounter the Lord in even more significant ways. If you think about it, Moses, Abraham, Jesus, Peter, James, and John all had significant encounters with the Lord after they journeyed up a mountain. And some of you can probably relate. Maybe you've been on a retreat or gone to a conference or gone on a mission trip and you had a significant encounter with God. And what do we call that? We call that a mountaintop experience. And it's important because when we're at the top, we have a different vantage point. We can see farther. And as we look down below at all the obstacles that seem so huge, they look small now. And when we get to the top, what we learn, we gain new understanding about ourselves and about God. And what we understand isn't if I work hard, I can eventually get up to the presence of the Lord. No, what we realize is he was always with us. He was always with us. When you're at the bottom of the mountain looking up or when you're halfway up and you look down at the crags and the rocks below, it feels like you're all alone. But when you get to the top, and glimpse the goodness of God, you realize he was always with us. Or maybe we could say we were always with him. In the parable of the prodigal son, the father says to the older brother, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. 
So where can you go that isn't the Lord's? The Lord is always with you. He keeps you. And in verse three, it says, he who keeps you will not slumber. And I've got to tell you, this idea of the Lord not sleeping, this is why I fell in love with this psalm. And I know for some of you, it may be kind of like a no duh, like, well, did you think that God sleeps? But for me, it is very profound. Like I can get it intellectually, but to think the God who made everything, the same God that, you know, gave the 10 commandments and parted the Red Sea keeps watch over me. Even while I sleep, he never sleeps. In verse four, it says, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And this is another contrast. It doesn't, uh, it's not as obvious to us because we kind of use slumber and sleep synonymously, but slumber is more like a really deep sleep. Sleep can be like dozing off. Like I remember when I was a kid and we were watching movies, you know, on the VCR, my dad would, would be lying on the couch and we'd hear him snoring and then we'd call him out and we'd be like, dad, you fell asleep. And he would say, no, no, I'm just resting my eyes. I'm like, first of all, that's not a thing. Like resting your eyes, that's not a thing. But second of all, what's the shame in saying that you dozed off? I don't get that. Why? Maybe now that I'm a dad, I'll do that someday, but I don't know why people are so scared to admit they just dozed off. But anyway, God doesn't go into a deep sleep, but he doesn't even rest his eyes. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Uh, So my daughter, Lucy, she's six months old and she inherited, um, well, I kind of have fear of missing out FOMO, you know, like, so I was always the last kid to go to sleep at a sleepover and I'm still kind of like that. And when I get anxious now, or I'm worried about something, the way it usually manifests itself is I don't sleep. She's kind of the same way. She does all the normal things that babies do when they get sleepy. Like she yawns and she rubs her eyes, but then she starts to fight it. When she starts to doze off, she goes like this (laughs) to wake herself up. And Brandy calls that the baby snake dance. And so I've been doing this thing recently during the day when she is obviously tired and needs to go down for a nap, but she just won't. By the way, this might sound like bad parenting and it potentially is, but I, so I'll put her on our bed, not in our bed, just on, you know, the comforter and put two pillows around her moms so she can't roll off. And, and then I cover her little feet because she's usually kicked her socks off. I give her her pacifier. I lay down next to her and I put my hand on her chest. This is the formula that usually works, but it takes about 15 minutes before it works. And those 15 minutes get violent (laughs) because those little baby hands turn into eagle talons. And usually her eyes are closed, but she's just going like this to my face. So she has two goals. Do not fall asleep and rip daddy's lips off of his face. (laughs) And she's good at both of those. I literally have a scab right here and right here from those little eagle talons. But as she's laying there, I try to be really still and make it peaceful. And, and well, honestly, I think part of it's like, I'm trying to like play dead. Like I'm getting mauled by a bear and I'm just like, please just go away. But, but I try to be really still so that she'll fall asleep. And I whisper and I whisper, it's okay. You can just go to sleep. I gotcha. You're okay. I can tell that you're tired. You're exhausted, girl. 
you can just relax. I got you. And I realized two weeks ago, before I knew I was going to be preaching or I would need to like pull out a dad illustration for a sermon, what a poignant metaphor this is for how God so often has to speak to me. I work and I strive and I burn myself out and I think I have to keep going and I think it's all on me and I think I have to get up the mountain on my own and the only way to do it is to muscle through past my exhaustion. But the Lord's message to us is it's okay, I've got this. He who keeps watch over us will neither sleep nor slumber. He is our help. He's our shade protecting us from the sun and the moon so we can rest. We're going to look at the last two verses in a minute, but I want to say every time I preach, I hope that you're going to come away knowing something more about the passage and that you're going to learn something. But more than anything, I want you to know Jesus. And I know that Pete and Chuck and Joe would say the same thing. More than we want you to tithe, more than we want you to volunteer or place membership or even ever walk through these doors again, we want you to know Jesus because that is better than life. There's nothing greater that I can point you to. And every passage of scripture points toward Jesus Christ, even these in the Old Testament before Jesus' earthly ministry. And so the task of a preacher when we're, when we're preaching from the Old Testament is to show you how this points to Jesus. And honestly, the hard thing for me isn't figuring out, it's having to decide which ones not to talk about because this whole psalm, as I dive into it, is screaming, this is Jesus. Verse two says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The name the Lord there is Yahweh. It is the holy, divine, personal name of God that God revealed to Moses on top of a mountain when he encountered God. But 2,000 years later, or 2,000 years ago, God revealed another name. God the Father revealed the name of God the Son, and it's Jesus. And we know that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth But the gospel of John says that Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So the Lord who made heaven and earth is Jesus. Later in the gospel of John, Jesus says, no one comes to the father except through me. No one comes to God, the father, except through Jesus Christ, the son And see, this is where Christianity gets very unpopular for a lot of people because this is an exclusive claim. If you want to get to God, you've got to go through Jesus. But I want to tell you, it's really good news. See, in the Old Testament, God is often symbolically depicted as being on a mountain, on a holy mountain. And the only way to enter the presence is to be holy ourselves. Look at Psalm 24 with me. This is what it says. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So this is the Lord who created heaven and earth. 
But who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Is that you? Do you have clean hands and a pure heart? Are you free of sin, free of pride, free of any selfish thoughts? It's not me. See, we're welcome to attempt to ascend the holy hill of God, but we can't do it apart from Christ because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And so he laid down his life. He laid down his righteousness so that we can be near God. He died a brutal death on the cross, but he also walked the longest, loneliest mountain. He drug his cross where the help of the Lord was not available, and he drank the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. He rose three days later. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven. And the Lord will not sleep or slumber. Do you know where Jesus is right now? He is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. 24-7, while we sleep, while we give him no thought, that's what he's doing for us. So how can we have these promises of God? How can the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, be our help? He has to be our Lord. He has to be our Lord. Jesus has to be our Lord. And all he requires is that we acknowledge our need for him, that we can't get up that holy mountain on our own. We need help from above. See, when I was climbing that rock with my youth group kids, I needed help from above. But if I'm honest about it, I would have given up except that I had my brothers down below cheering me on. We don't need the psalm of ascent because we have to make a pilgrimage to God because God is with us through the Holy Spirit. We are no longer exiled from God. Where we go, the spirit of the living God goes with us if we are in Christ. But we need the psalms of ascent Because when we look to the mountains, it seems impossible. And maybe you don't find yourself climbing a mountain today, but maybe you know brothers and sisters who are, and maybe you need to be like my youth group guys, and you need to be the one at the bottom cheering them on saying, the Lord is your help. The Lord who made heaven and earth is your help. So we're going to look at the last two verses. This is verses seven and eight. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. These are some of the sweetest promises that you can find in scripture, but they're also some of the hardest to believe because they don't seem congruent with our experience so often. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. That's another merism. Going out, coming in. It means whatever you do, wherever you go, the Lord will keep you. 
But what about the accident I got in? Did he keep me? It says the Lord will keep your life. But what about the people who we've lost? Did he keep their life? The Lord will keep you from all evil. But you've been lied to. And you've been lied about. And you've been taken advantage of. And you've been abused. The Lord will keep you from evil. But you've committed evil. You've done things that you don't want the person next to you to know about. You've done things that have hurt the people you love the most. Did he keep us from all evil? The Lord keeps us, but he doesn't coddle us because he's a good and loving father after all. He has a long view of things, a view we're not privy to because we're not on top of the mountain. He keeps us from anything that can hurt our souls. He preserves us. We will be with him always. But there's no gospel promise that says if we follow Christ, we'll have easy lives and we won't have suffering. If you think about it, when the Israelites went out to battle, God always promised, if you follow me, if you do what I tell you to do, you will have victory. But they still had to march. They still had to pick up their swords. They still had to see death and destruction and the horror of war because God didn't coddle them. The Lord will be your help, but you still got to climb. Jesus had to climb Golgotha. Abraham had to climb Moriah. I want to come back to Genesis 22 now, and I want you to hear what happened when Abraham got up that mountain with Isaac. This is starting in verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Earlier in this story, Abraham lifted up his eyes to the mountain and he probably wondered what kind of God would ask you to sacrifice your own son. But on the mountain, Abraham experiences the goodness of God. In fact, in the first part of this chapter, he calls him God, Elohim. But in the last part, he calls him Yahweh because he knows him in a new, intimate way. When he lifts his eyes up at the end of the story, he sees the ram who will be the sacrifice in Isaac's place. And so as we lift our eyes to the hills... I pray that we'll also lift our eyes to the cross of Christ, that we will see not just the dread 
and the heartache, but that we will see the cross of Christ. We will see the lamb who is slain and that we'll be left asking, what kind of God gives his own son just so that I can be near him? I'm going to tell you a brief story and then we're going to be done. When I was in college, um, I was in a touring band. In fact, I was for about 15 years. And so I was working full time and I was doing this band and I was in school full time and it was finals week and I had been out playing shows all weekend and I didn't get to work on school and I got home from work and the next morning I had an exam to take and I had a paper to write. And I just thought, I can't do this. I cried. I was so exhausted. I just wanted to sleep. I thought, I can't do this. I laid down on my bed and I started praying. And when I fell asleep, I had a dream. And I dreamed that I saw God, not his face. It was just like this kind of blob. And I really only saw his feet. But he picked me up and he put me on his shoulders. And I could see everything. And I saw mountains down below. And the mountains bowed to God wherever he went. And I realized if I'm on God's shoulders and the mountains bow to God, then in a way they're bowing to me too. So later that week, I wrote a song about it called One Time. And it ended up being one of my favorite songs and fans of my band. It's one of their favorite songs. We've probably played it 500 times on tour. And I want to close by just telling you the words of the song that I wrote. It says, let me tell you what he did for me with the weight of my worries tearing my sleeve. I cried to my father, the end of all hope. Show me the rope, which way to go. As I fell asleep, he took away my worries. He picked me up and put me on his shoulders. I could see for miles He showed me that the mountain I'm climbing is not a mountain at all, but a gentle slope leading home. But there are mountains towering ahead. But he says to me, these are mine. Hold my hand. You'll be fine. I could see for miles. He showed me that the mountain I'm climbing is not a mountain at all, but a gentle slope leading home. The mountains are mine. The mountains are mine. The mountains are mine. Let's pray. God, you are our help and you are our hope. And we need you desperately. What an honor that the Lord who made heaven and earth wants to know us. What an honor that the Lord who made heaven and earth keeps constant watch over us. Lord, may we be able in some small degree to take in this truth and carry it with us this week. We thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope that it brings. May it bring joy and hope and peace even in the midst of the ascent to my brothers and sisters here. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.